The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Schneider Electric is pioneering modular and scalable microgrids that can island themselves and operate autonomously from the grid. Microgrids are not a single technology, but rather a combination of proven technologies that can meet the needs of regions small or large. Schneider Electric has hundreds of microgrids deployed, and you can find out more at the link in our show notes to see if Schneider's microgrids will work for you. The Interchange is also brought to you by NextTracker, the world's leading solar tracking solutions company. NextTracker works with customers to advance the power plant of the future by connecting smart trackers with the TrueCapture Advanced Control software. TrueCapture optimizes performance and increases energy yield and also reduces costs for developers. Find out more at nexttracker.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Greentech Media. Welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. This week, the embedded emissions in our buildings. When we talk about climate change on this show and what causes it, we're usually talking about gases that come from vehicles or from the electricity sector. But what about the built environment? There's the natural gas that gets burned in them, and then there's all the electricity it takes to power them. And then there's another category, all the upfront energy that went into making the buildings in the first place. That's called embodied carbon or embedded carbon, or sometimes upfront carbon. In fact, in the last few crucial years when we can bend the arc of climate change, most of the emissions that come from buildings are going to come from embodied carbon. So how we choose to build buildings really matters. Our senior editor Ingrid Lobet has a special interest in buildings and wrote recently about embodied carbon for Green Tech Media. Just before everything shut down with the pandemic several months ago, Ingrid was at a conference on this subject organized in part by Ed Masria. Masria has been at the forefront of the growing faction of builders, engineers, and designers intent on remaking buildings into a climate solution. I asked Ingrid if she could snag an interview with Ed for the podcast, and she did. So we thought we'd bring you that conversation today. Okay, so so what we know is is that globally building operations is about 28% of total emissions. So that's operating business. That's heating, ventilating, air conditioning, plug, plug loads, all those things. And then probably another half, another 25% or even more, is buildings and an infrastructure. We know that 11% of total building emissions is just kind of the core and shell of buildings. So all the structure and the outside walls and the glass and things like that. But then you have all the interiors and the heating and ventilating equipment. They have to make all that. That's all metal and and machinery. And uh, you have to truck it and get it to the site. And then you need to connect those buildings up to the site, to, to um, water systems. And all that gets us over 50 over 50%. The uh, and we call that then the built environment. So we expand the definition to include all the things that we do as architects, engineers, planners, and building sect- our building sector community, people who uh, make the materials and, uh, and supply us uh, the supply chains uh, of building and construction materials. So we're really responsible for a major, major portion of total greenhouse gas emissions. And for people who are used to looking at a pie chart of emissions, and it might be broken down to industry or electrical generation, this pie chart that you've just created is so different from what people outside of the architecture community are used to looking at. It's 
It's the pie recast with a full accounting for everything involved in creating the spaces that we inhabit. Yes, and and um, if we sort of try to get a handle on the whole part of what we what we do, uh, you know, we specify every material that goes into a building there, and we have um, hundreds of thousands of choices. So everything from carpet and paint to windows and ceilings and glass and sheet metal for ductwork and lighting systems and wiring and concrete and steel and everything else. So there are literally hundreds, hundreds of millions of materials that make up the built environment. You know, it's daunting. I mean, where do we start and where do we end and how do we get a handle on this? Well, we looked into it and, you know, actually after quite some time, we finally isolated two materials that make up half of the entire industrial sector. It's everything that's made in the world. There are two materials that are responsible for half of all of those emissions. And once we, once we figured that out, that's concrete and steel, by the way, once we figured that out, then we went, whoa, now, now it's, not so, it's not so daunting, right? Let's get a handle on those two materials. And then, we, then slowly we can incorporate the rest and get, get the whole sector down. People have to be aware. And once that happens, then they're calling for people start calling for action and everything. So the first, the first thing we say is, you have to change the conversation. Otherwise, you're not talking to anybody about real, real systemic change. Well, that conversation's happened, and it's it's changing now, the way we talk about materials. So, changing the conversation has now happened. Okay. So now, what do we do about it? Okay. Now that's that's where we are. Well, there are all sorts of companies now. All of a sudden, if you start talking about it, people figure out ways. We're really inventive. We're incredibly inventive species, right? Uh, if we see a problem, you know, people begin to address it in all sorts of areas you didn't even think. Now you have people creating aggregate for concrete out of the air, right? Just taking CO2 out of the air and making a little aggregate. Now we don't have to go dredge you know, dredge up sand and, and aggregate and stone and everything, which is also fairly destructive to the environment, now we can just pull it out of the air and make it. Well, that technology is is actually happening. It was on the horizon just a bit ago, and it's now starting, you know, very beginning stages. But uh, another one is actually taking uh, CO2, carbon dioxide, and injecting it into a concrete to actually strengthen the concrete. And it changes the properties of CO2 into another compound. And so it sequesters it, so you can actually take it and um, and change it. So now it doesn't; it's not into the atmosphere, and you reduce the impact of concrete. So all that is happening. On top of that, you have so, for example, let's take steel. For example, there are lots of ways to make steel. Some come from recycled steel. Some use electric arc furnaces. Some use a coal, and so there are ways to cut down on that. So if you phase out coal, which we need to do, and you go to electric arc furnaces, you reduce the embodied carbon, so the amount of carbon that is that is generated and goes into the atmosphere, you reduce that, the embodied carbon, significantly. And now, well, what if we use renewable energy to generate the electricity for the electric arc? Well, now you reduce it even further. And what if we use recycled steel so we're not using making virgin steel and things like that, which is what you normally use in electric arc furnaces that 
you know, so you get, so, and then people begin inventing other processes. And now we're starting to look at other materials, the substitutes. So for example, wood. Wood's becoming, you know, it's competitive, right? And it's and people love the feeling of wood and things. And uh, so you're beginning to see that as a competitor now to steel and concrete. So now steel and concrete can't sit still and let their market share disappear, right? So they start reinventing themselves into other areas. That's how you change entire global industries. And then you get our sector. We're really the gatekeepers of all of this. So everything kind of filters through us, through the architecture and, and engineering community, things like that, because a building just doesn't happen. You know, 20 stories, 50 story skyscraper, or even a house, just doesn't happen. Somebody has to draw it up, and somebody has to specify every material that goes in there from the hundreds of thousands of millions of materials. We, we're the ones who do that. So if we start specifying differently, industry reacts. And so if we're aware of the issue and we start specifying things very differently, the industry, in order not to, they don't want to go bankrupt, lose market share or anything, they then begin to adapt. So it starts with the gatekeepers. And that's what this conference, Carbon Positive, was all about, is how how are we going to address this issue now? bringing together all of the advances in, in manufacturing and materials, how to account for, how do we account for it, right? How do we account for a million different materials from paint to carpet to, to wiring to concrete and you know everything else? Those tools are being developed now. Once the problem's identified and once you expand everybody's awareness of the issue and the problem, you start to bring together people who are been addressing this for a long time, by the way. This is not something that's like new. It's just that nobody's known about it. And they speak their own language. So it's not the language that we all, that people who are not in the field speak. So it didn't get the the play it, you know, in the mainstream media and the press. So now we bring it. We bring all that together in carbon positive and get the word out and start to explain it in a whole different way, kind of the way I'm explaining it now so that everyone understands what the issues are. And then you create an effect where it steamrolls out and uh, we begin to solve the problem. So the, the thing is to identify the problem, make people aware of it in a language they can understand so that then they can act on it and show them the ways forward. And when you say people, you mean designers and architects in this case? I mean designers. I mean, well, the built environment is so broad. It's everything from designers and architects and planners to landscape architects to interior designers to um, all the way down to clients, manufacturing, distribution networks. The built environment is enormous. And so in the past, we had siloed things a bit, building operations. So we were talking just about architects and engineers. Now we've expanded the tent and we brought everybody together. So Carbon Positive was expanding the tent and bringing all of those involved in the built environment together. Once we've identified that and have a roadmap on how to get what we need to do and how to get there, then we can move. So at Carbon Positive, what we've done is we've set the targets to meet the 1.5 degrees Celsius that the scientific community has set for keeping climate change 
somewhat manageable. You're working with a, a, a budget of 340 gigatons. Yeah, so one of the but so we know roughly how much you can emit. We have that number. The scientific community has given us that number for a 67% chance to uh, meet the 1.5 degrees to kind of stay at that level, roughly at that level. Our carbon budget is 340 gigatons of CO2. That's how much we can emit into the atmosphere. So if you work backwards from that budget, it's no, you know, it's not a mystery. It's 340. We know what we're doing now. We're doing about 40, 38, something like that, gigatons a year. Then you see what the reduction is, and when you have to actually phase out to zero because the budget is finite. So you've got, you only you use it up, you're done. You know, you can't emit anymore. Otherwise, then climate change becomes worse and worse and becomes irreversible in a sense. So uh, working backwards, the targets become really clear. We need a 50 to 65% reduction between now and 2030. And that's why you hear, we, oh, we have 10 years left. Well, We've got to get a big reduction, best 60, 65% reduction, and then phasing out by 2040 all CO2 emissions. So we have an interim goal and an end game, right? The interim goal is critical because if you don't meet that budget, then that timeline 2040 moves up to 2039, 2038, 2037. It gets more difficult. Now you have more. You have to... You know, you, you the downward to, ramp just gets impossibly that's steep. Right. Then it almost becomes uh, impossible. And um, there, there are uh, special interests that want to slow that down and uh, don't want us to meet the, that budget, uh, whether they believe things or they don't believe things. I'm not trying to second guess anybody, but those are the budgets. That's the science. And if the science says that, who wants? We're going to roll the dice to what? Uh, to destroy. Uh, all sorts of uh, things that make you know, um, you know, make misery uh, globally exponential. Uh, I don't think so. So, it's key for us to stay within that budget, and that is, that was one of the other messages at Carbon Positive. Here's the budget. What do we do? Okay, so we'll establish the targets, and we want everybody to agree to those targets, and we know that some people are not going to do it. We want a group that goes beyond the targets, that actually sets the pace, that goes beyond that. So we're now working to get the industries together, get the firms together, to get um, product manufacturers together, who will exceed those targets and set the table for everyone else to join in and, and come along. So we need the what we call the high ambition people within our sector, within the built environment, to step step forward. And with so many people having targets of 2050, I guess you also wanted to disturb the complacency of thinking that you could actually stick to a budget of 340 gigatons if you did wait until 2050 also. Yeah. We, we established the 2050 goal, and this was back in 2015. But we haven't, from 2015, we haven't made the reduction. So now we're at 2025 years later, and we've used up a lot of the budget, and now we're down to this 340. So the end date has moved way up to 2040 in order to meet that budget because we've used up too much, too much energy and we haven't been reducing. We're, we're at the peak, close to the peak, and then need to get on the downside very quickly. So, so we're, we're, not, uh, we're not doing too bad. 
In the U.S., our building sector is, our emissions are actually way down, around 20% for the whole sector, even though we've added billions of square feet of building, which is huge. So we have a success story. We've also decoupled for the first time in U.S. history. We've decoupled greenhouse gas emissions in the building sector. So all the bil- all buildings, the entire building sector in the U.S., is not using any more energy than it used back in 2005 when we identified the issue. We built almost 47 billion square feet and energy consumption in the built, entire building sector didn't go up. So we were renovating buildings and bringing those, those buildings in fairly efficient. And we've reduced emissions because if the building sector is not using any more energy on an annual basis, then every time we put a collector up, it reduces emissions. It displaces fossil fuels because we don't need any more energy. So if it goes into use, if we build a wind farm, if a utility builds a wind farm, that reduces the CO2 emissions in the building sector. So while energy consumption is flat, emissions are down about 20% because of all the renewable energy we put in. Now, we've also displaced some coal generating electricity with natural gas which emits less CO2. So we reduced our CO2 emissions a bit. That's not the major driver. The major driver was renewables and efficiency and better design and better buildings and better codes, all of that, and new technologies like uh, LED lights and things like that. All of that helped us reduce both energy consumption and emissions from the building sector. Um, And then a small percentage, very small percentage, was um, was what we call this fuel switching, but it only reduced CO2. But then what we're learning now is that it uh, that methane increased and offset that. So uh, the, exactly those numbers we don't know, but we think it's pretty much a wash. So we we really didn't get any reductions from that. So we really need to phase out natural gas at this point because it's not it's not doing us any good. It's doing more harm, a lot more harm than good. A quick pause here to talk about our supporters of the show, the folks that bring you this podcast. We're brought to you by Schneider Electric, the leader of digital transformation in energy management and automation. We live in a new energy landscape that's disrupting the entire power ecosystem, driven by decentralization, decarbonization, and the advent of digital technologies. Schneider Electric has designed and deployed more than 300 microgrids in North America that is accelerating all of those trends, helping customers gain energy independence and control while increasing resilience and health Helping reach clean energy goals. Find out more about Schneider Electric's microgrids by following the link in the show notes. We're also brought to you by NextTracker. NextTracker collects gigabytes and gigabytes of real-time operational and performance data every hour that serves customers and helps them manage the health and well-being of their solar and storage assets and, of course, optimize their energy yields and make more money. NextTracker's latest addition to its software ecosystem complements the True Capture Smart Tracker control system by providing additional intelligence and control that results in higher production yield and lower operations and maintenance costs. Find out more at nexttracker.com. One message that you're trying to get out now is when we talk about carbon emissions from cities, where are those emissions coming from? And you have an analogy of mountains and valleys, and the mountains are a city's tall buildings. Talk about their role. 
Okay, so yeah, so we call it mountains and carpets, or or mountain and carpets, mountains and carpets. So the mountains, when we look at the built environment, at buildings, just specifically the building sector of the built environment. So the built environment is everything: sidewalks and roads and bridges and all those things that connect things up, piping. When we look at the building sector, we say, okay, in a city, in an existing city. What does the topology of that city look like, the topology? Okay, so in order to do that, we take a bird's eye view of the city. So if you've ever taken a bird's eye view of the city, you see this mountain of buildings, small, small mountain of buildings, not that many buildings, but this small mountain of buildings that's a downtown core. It's a downtown area. They're usually, five, you know, 10-story, 20-story, you know, some huge buildings clustered together really tight and everything else. And then you see this carpet. If you're flying into fly into a city from an airplane, you'll see that. Okay, you see a carpet of one, two, three-story buildings, fairly low, flat, and everything else. It's kind of like a carpet surrounding the the the, the city. It goes way out into the suburbs, for example. Then you might see another little mountain or a hill somewhere of big buildings. But when you add up the emissions from these few fewer big buildings. So, for example, in Seattle, there are 5,000-plus big buildings, over 20,000 square feet, and then 175, 76,000 small buildings, which are under that. So those buildings, the large buildings, are responsible for half of all the emissions coming out of the building sector. Well, 5,000, I can deal with that if I'm a city. If I give them enough time when they're doing a renovation, it doesn't cost that much to upgrade it's easier to do than 176,000 buildings, each one with an individual owner in uh, in that city. In New York, there are a million small buildings and 20, 30,000 large buildings, that's it. So you see that that uh, mountain and carpet topology playing out in almost every, every U.S. So you look at Minneapolis, you look at San Francisco, you look at L.A., you look at Philadelphia, it's all, it's all very similar. You just establish the threshold between big buildings and small buildings, and then you have few big buildings responsible for half of the emissions, and then all these small buildings the other half. So you come up with a date certain for big buildings, give them enough time to get to zero emissions, either with electrification and clean energy or renovation for efficiency. There's all sorts of options that they have. If you're a city, you give them incentives to do that. If you're going to renovate to zero carbon, for example, put them at the front of the line to get a building permit. It saves a lot of money. Um, that would get people's attention. That'll get people, right, and, and rebates, tax incentives, and you name it. There's a, there's a litany of things you can do and get them to go early so that you don't get everybody lining up at the at the end date. So we say the end date is 2030. By 2030, every big building in a city, because there's, there's not that many, should be zero carbon. And then give them incentives to go early so that you don't get everybody stacking up at 2029 trying to now meet the deadline. And cities now are thinking about penalties. If you don't do it, pay a penalty, and then they go renovate another building. So they're going to get that, they're going to get that reduction Either way. Because these office buildings are not like a home that might go 30 years without anybody doing any renovations. Yeah, there's a renovation cycle, a a capital improvement cycle in large buildings. You have a a lot of large buildings that are older. A lot of them, their capital improvement cycles coming up. If you renovate, you know, at the time you're doing a capital improvement cycle, 
and you're going to renovate for efficiency and getting to zero and switching out clean electricity, the cost is minimal compared to if you have to just do that because you're doing so many other things. The setup costs and everything else for construction is a big cost. You buy insurance. You got to get. There's just so many things that you have to do. You those costs disappear if you're just doing an add-on. So. If I have to replace a boiler, I've got to replace it anyway. It's going to cost me to replace it. So if I upgrade to a heat pump, and I might actually save money. But if it costs something, if I have to upgrade to something more efficient, it's a lot cheaper if I'm upgrading, if I'm changing it out anyway. In construction, half the cost is in the labor. The other half is actually in the material. So upgrading, you're only upgrade, not costing you anything else anymore in the labor. And then the upgrade from one item to another is, is usually pretty small. Which brings us to the topic of policy levers. Can you tell us what the zero code is? So the zero code is a, a zero carbon code for new buildings. So it's a building essentially produces no greenhouse gas emissions. That's it. And the zero code is unique because we're not trying to change the code system. Right now, our national code standards are fairly efficient. There's a code cycle. Every three years, they go through a code cycle, and every three years, new technologies enter into the equation, and they get um, they get upgraded uh, every three years. They usually, every three years, become more efficient. But the codes now are fairly, fairly efficient, so that the, the percentage uh, reduction now uh, from a small number is a smaller number, right? Whereas when, before, when buildings were inefficient, the percentage from a huge number is a big, num- a big drop. Right. Uh, so now the increments are getting smaller and smaller. So we're at a point now with codes where we want them to get more efficient every three years, obviously, because efficiency is usually cheaper than any other option. But we're at a point now where we can get to zero. So we take the existing code, rather than creating a whole new code, for example, which is complex and a lot of stakeholders and everything else, and just add the renewables. So you can do that on site. And if and we say if you can't do it on site because you're building, let's say you're building in the downtown core, it's going to be hard. There's shade, one building shading another, things like that. You don't have, you don't have enough roof area. We say then buy it. We say buy it off-site. Procure it. Yeah, procure it from the utilities. In this way, if you adopt a zero code, if a city adopts a zero code, they can calculate how much renewables they're going to need on every year because they know roughly how much building they need, building they do every year, and they know how much energy the buildings are going to take if they meet the code. I mean, this is not rocket science. So now you have a ready-made market. This is an, now an established market for renewables year in and year out. This is not iffy and if I do this, am I taking a chance and they're not going to have it? You know, nobody wants to buy it. This is, this is a ready-made uh, market that, that uh, then is established uh, by the city through, through the code and the renewable energy portion of the code. Cities have an option to incorporate it into the code, into their energy code. Like in the IECC, it'll be an appendix now in the International Energy Conservation Code. So any city can pick it up and just put it into their code. Or they can adopt it by ordinance. There's all sorts of ways a city can adopt the renewable energy portion to get all new buildings to zero carbon. 
Once that happens, the curve bends down really quickly because now every time you add a collector, every time you renovate a building, emissions start going down. It's the, it is the best way that cities can meet the obligations that they're coming. They're saying, oh, I'm going to get the zero by 24. I'm going to get the zero by 2045. I'm going to get the zero by this. I'm going to get the zero by that. This gives them the first option that's fairly easy to, to implement to begin to get those reductions. Otherwise, they're going to go out a few years with, without these reductions, and then it's going to be really, then they're going to have to take you know, pretty intense measures to meet the commitments that they're setting up now. Who so, has adopted the Zero Code? So the Zero Code just came out. The IECC process is a, a three-year process. It just went into the IECC and got approved. So it is now approved through the I, uh, International Energy Conservation Code. So all those cities that are under the Energy International Energy Con- Conservation Code can now adopt it. Before they, they couldn't, they would have to do it by ordinance and things like that. So this gives them an easy way to do it. There are a number of cities looking at it right now. The state of Oregon adopted the zero code without the implementation part, the requirement to do it. So right now, you have to meet the, the efficiency portion of the code, which is ASHRAE 90.1 2016, and then they'll improve it when the 2019, all the tools become available. And then they have reporting on the renewables. How much can I get on site and how much uh, do I need to purchase off site? Uh, so all that, when you're doing a building now in Oregon, you'll have to report on that. And then it will be up to the jurisdictions to, to pass ordinances for the renewable, renewable portion. We know that in California, number of cities are starting to look at that. Uh, so it's starting to catch on. A few, some cities in, in uh, Massachusetts, um, one is looking at it as a zoning overlay. So there are many ways to implement it. Another is a density bonus. We give you a bonus if you go to zero. A density will let you uh, do some more square footage, things like that. The other part... Um, Just one second on, as far as the International Energy Code, is that pretty widely adopted? Yeah, the inter- the, there are 37 states in the U.S. that have adopted the International Energy Conservation Code. So the cities are under that code system. Other states um, have other, like California has its own code, right? It's Title 24, and so California is a special case. And, you know, in some cities, home rule cities have their own codes. Uh, They've taken, like, the ASHRAE code and kind of massaged it and changed things around that are very city-specific. So the code system... The, the IECC is the, is the most widely used, but there are lots of exceptions. And home rule cities, the, most of the larger cities have the ability under the state systems to, to enact their own, their own code. When you're, when you're talking to the kinds of people who are at this conference, what do you say to them when they say, I don't really have the right client for that, or oh, this isn't the right client to be stressing uh, that kind of energy efficiency with them? It won't wash. So, in 50 years of experience, I've never had a client come to me and say, I don't want you to save me money on my energy bills. As long as you design the building within budget, within their budget, they're happy to get the savings, right? Now, as designers, like I said, we have hundreds of thousands of choices. The shape of the building, how it's oriented, where we put the windows, what type of glass that we use, is the window shaded or not, what type of materials we use inside the building, are the, are the windows operable or not operable, what's the color of the building? I mean, 
we can shape the building so it uses almost no energy if we want, just through design options, just through if we're smart enough, right? So we we have to have the information. As designers, we have to educate ourselves on how to design buildings. In the past, buildings had no heating systems and cooling systems, and people survived, right? And some spaces were super comfortable, and we have examples of those buildings. Some of those buildings still standing now. We use what's called passive solar systems in the 70s. When the energy crisis hit in 73, this whole movement started of, of getting off of energy altogether, fossil fuels, no heating and cooling systems, zero, and keeping systems comf- buildings comfortable. And at that time, the computers were just coming in and not very sophisticated, but we were able to build test models and you know really early computer simulations. Used to have to take a, in order to do a, you do one run a night now we do it in three seconds, right? You have to take a stack of cards, program it, take it to the computer center, give it to them. Then the next day you get an analysis of that one scenario, right? Right now we do it in, in a nanosecond. Back then we figured it all out. I think I have your book from back then. Yeah, Is it called the, the Passive Energy. Solar House? Well, Passive Solar Energy book. Yeah, so all the strategies are in there for, for heating and cooling. Um, and then a new administration came in. They worked out some stuff with, they worked out some deals with the Middle East, and energy prices went back down through the floor and was super cheap and didn't cost anything. And you can heat, light, and cool buildings. And and um, so we put all that aside. We we would we would have had this problem licked, climate change licked in the building sector in the 70s had we gone kept going. In fact, we were almost there. But now what we've seen is a new phenomenon. We now know all those principles, and most architects know how to design or can educate themselves very, very quickly. We have the tools out there, and information flows like, you know, in, again, in nanoseconds. We have whole programs that'll tell you how much energy you're going to use and all that. So uh, it's no mystery now to design very, very l- low energy buildings. But what has happened since the 70s is the price of capturing solar energy and turning it into electricity has dropped through the floor. It's now so much cheaper than coal. That's why you see coal plants closing down coal plants. So much cheaper to build a wind farm and and use sun. And you're not transporting it. The sun is delivered free to your site. So here's an energy source. There's no piping. You don't have to dig anything up. You don't have to transport it by by train. You don't have to build a rail system. You don't have, you know, and then you have to take it into a big, you know, build a whole plant. Then you have to burn the thing. Then you have all this gas coming out. It's delivered free to every site in the U.S. Solar energy. You don't. You have to collect it. The collectors have gone through the floor. You can get them. They're really cheap. Now you just have to figure out a way to store it from daytime to evening. Battery storage is now all of a sudden dropping, and the capacity is growing and growing with the automobile industry. Because the automobile now, automobile industry, is moving away from gasoline to electricity. We're starting, we're at the beginnings of this revolution. And, and what you're talking about now is, is what our show tends to focus on, actually. Uh, but maybe some of our listeners are a little bit more focused on vehicles, the power sector, solar, wind, geothermal, maybe not thinking about buildings so much. What's the most important thing you'd like them to, to shift in their thinking when it comes to buildings? Well, I think now we're talking about the built environment. So we're shifting from buildings 
but still with a focus on buildings because buildings in a city, for example, an existing city is the major emitter of CO2 emissions, but expanding the tent to materials. And we have to get a handle on embodied carbon. And the reason is that when you build a building, right, all the emissions from day one are in the materials and the construction and everything else. And it takes 10, 20 years to reach the amount that you, that you use to build a building. And in other words, there's so much involved in building the building that you have to run the building for 20 years before you've emitted that much carbon. That's right. That's correct. And so with the building boom that's going on globally and the amount of construction that is projected to take place in the world, we need to get a handle on that, what we call upfront carbon, which is the carbon that takes place the day you open a building, right, the, when, you, you, when you build it. And when we look at the number, the projected numbers are staggering. The number that comes to mind is that we will build out an entire new world. So all the buildings that we have now, we're going to build again so that by 2060, we'll have essentially a whole new world. And that's starting right now. And it's starting really in three places, in North America, in Europe, and in China. That's where a lot of the building is taking place right now. And then it starts moving south. It starts moving down into India and Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia. So we have an opportunity in what we call the global north, which is the three regions I talked about, to get it right. If we get it right, we set the example. And once you start getting it right and, and industry then catches up, and supplies and gives you the supply chains and everything else to do what you're doing, it automatically transfers to the next generation of buildings and the generation after that. So we have to get it right in the U.S. We have to get it right in Europe, and we have to get it right in China, and we have to start getting it right in India and Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia uh, and other parts, uh, you know, other other parts of the world. But but we have to set the example. Thanks so much for talking with me. Okay. Thank you so much for doing this. And that was Ed Masria, architect and educator and founder of Architecture 2030, a nonprofit that's trying to influence engineers and architects and builders to use their significant influence to lower the carbon that goes into buildings. And he was, of course, talking to our senior editor, Ingrid Lobet. You can learn more about the movement to design and build carbon-positive buildings in the show notes. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. The Interchange is a weekly podcast on the global energy transformation. It's hosted by me and Shale Khan. And each week we try to bring you insights into technology markets, projects, company financials, mergers and acquisitions, policy changes, market data, you name it. And uh, if you like what you're hearing here, go to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating and review, hit us up on social media. We are a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. And we appreciate you being here listening to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey. We'll catch you next time.